Welcome to the On The Green Podcast, where we'll give you the latest news and events from the world of golf and spotlight golf courses from around Northeast Florida and the First Coast. We'll take you inside the ropes with interviews, strategies for playing the courses, and get a tip from the head professional. Each show will also feature an interview with a prominent golf insider. They'll share firsthand stories and insights you won't hear anywhere else. Now, here's your host of On The Green, Tim Eiley. Hello, and welcome to another edition of On The Green Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Eiley. We're coming to you from Studio Podcast Suites here in Jacksonville, Florida. You can find the podcast on your favorite podcast platform or check us out on our website, onthegreenconsulting.com. There you can also find my monthly blog, which I hope you'll enjoy. This is the third installment of a new podcast series, Influential Women in Golf, that I am really excited about. I brought together four of the most influential women in the game of golf to talk about their lives and careers, both on the course and in the boardroom. These ladies are Hall of Fame members, national award winners, trailblazers, and accomplished golfers. And while their journeys may have been different, one thing they all share, each one has given much more to the game of golf than they have received. So it's going to be a great show. So welcome to the Influential Women in Golf podcast series right here on On the Green Podcast. It is my pleasure to welcome Renee Powell to the show. Now, Renee has had a fascinating life journey that has seen many ups and downs, but one thing that has been a constant is her love of the game of golf and her passion to see the game grow. Now, while accolades are not something she pursues, she has received many, and her impact on the game is immeasurable. She joined the LPGA Tour in 1967, becoming only the second African-American to do so. In 2003, she received the PGA of America's First Lady of Golf Award. In 2008, she became just the third American golfer and the first woman to receive an honorary doctorate from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. In 2015, she became only the second American woman to receive an honorary membership into the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St. Andrews. And she is also a member of both the Ohio Golf Hall of Fame and the PGA of America Hall of Fame. Renee, welcome to On the Green Podcast. Thank you, Tim. It's great to be with you. I've been looking forward to this. You've led such an incredible life so far. Uh, I know there's many years to come. Um, But I think in order to under kind of understand um, how you got in the game of golf, you, you know, I think we need to kind of start at the beginning and, and you had a very unique way in which your dad introduced you to the game. Well, I did, you know, my, my dad had, had taken up the game when he was nine. He discovered it. He became a, a caddy and a, and a golfer. Uh, but goes back to 1926. He grew up in a little town, 10 miles down the road from where we, where the golf course is and where we live now. And, um, he was so fascinated by it that he actually started the very first high school golf team in, in his town at his high school called Minerva High School when he went into high school. And then, um, after high school, he actually wasn't welcome at some of the, at the air, other area golf courses because of the color of his skin. He grew up in a, a town that my dad grew up in with literally their, their family was the only black family in the town. So, um, you know, he fell in love with the game early on, and we'll go fast forward to World War II. And so he was stationed in Scotland and England during the war and found that he was welcome to play golf um, at uh, various golf courses when on his days off um, you know, during the war. 
you know, every little town in England or Scotland has a golf course. So the members were, you know, letting me use their golf clubs and, and their golf courses, or else he would borrow clubs from the Red Cross. So she really felt that once he came home after three years of uh, fighting the war, that, that things would have changed. Sure. And he came back home and found that still as a black soldier, he wasn't welcome at golf courses still. And this wasn't in the South, it was in Ohio. You know, up north here in, in his hometown area. And he found that so distasteful that he decided that he, there was nothing else that he could do besides look to build a golf course some kind of way. <laughs> okay. And so, so his thing was, well, he said, well, there's a GI Bill, GI Bill. However, he ran into difficulty there because the GI Bill was only for white soldiers and not for black soldiers. Oh, my gosh. And so he eventually found a way, you know, he was so persistent to make a change, um, you know, in society because my dad always said everybody deserves an opportunity to play golf because he loved it that much. You know, women weren't that welcome in golf and youth weren't that welcome in golf. And so he, in 1946, he began building Clearview Golf Course, which then actually opened in, uh, in 48, just a little over a year after that. That's that's so, that's incredible. So that's how I got started. My dad then uh, felt that it was important to teach the entire family how to play golf. And I was three years old, still have my golf club from the time I was three that my dad put in my hand. <laughs> it's a little small for me now, but, <laughs> right. but it still was a little steel shaft, wooden-headed golf club. And um, that's how I got started. Now you you started playing tournaments at like age twelve. Um, I did. So how how did you did, did you ever you know you were really really good because you'd won you know thirty tournaments as a teenager. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of obstacles did you run up against uh, during your time playing as a teenager? My gosh, well you know I started off. Um, I don't know if you were familiar with tournaments with the UGA, United Golfers Association. Mm-hmm. But it was an organization that was formed, I think it was started up in Boston. And um, because as, as people of color, we weren't welcome <laughs> in, at golf courses and tournaments, many places. And I think in, in, so the United Golfers Association had member clubs also. And those member clubs actually would put on golf tournaments. Tournaments for, uh, and it was, this was a, a, a black golf organization and so they had uh, divisions for men amateurs women amateurs junior boys and junior girls and and professionals so people like Lee Elder Charlie Sipper mm-hmm. uh, they all played in the in the pro division and I started off playing in the junior girls division um, so uh, and there were generally two golf courses that were open to black people in most cities. And they were like basically the city golf courses. I know in Pittsburgh there were two and in Cleveland there were two. Uh, so it was very, um, you know, it was, it was very much a challenge. Mm-hmm. And they were only, I remember we stayed at a lot of Howard Johnson restaurants because it was safe places to stay. Um, and, you know, they had restaurants and the hotel, you know, the motel and the restaurant. Right. And then in different cities, you know, there were, used to be a lot of cafeterias. And people would all, you know, um, meet 
at the same place to eat, you know, and but people like Joe Lewis were playing and Billy Eckstein, you know, people like that. And so one got to know a lot of those, you know, entertainers and 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 athletes that love golf too because it was we all it was it was in places that we all could play. Uh there were tournaments that were um um white tournaments that my couple of times my parents had to fight to get me into the tournament because they didn't want me to play because I was black. So there were those challenges. Um, the, the one thing that I did, I remember my first year as a 16 year old playing in the United States junior USGA uh, junior girls tournament. And Mr. Dye, Joe Dye was the executive director. And, um, so I was the first black to play in that. And I remember him coming out and talking to my dad and, then when we got to the tournament site in Buffalo, that the only thing that the USGA requires is that you have a golf game and that, that Renee does. And he was so welcoming. And wow. so, you know, I've always been very, um, had good, good thoughts and good, good memories of the USGA because I played in the, the following week, I played in the US Women's Amateur. I was 16 years old, but you know, it's, but and then I thought about those other tournaments. There were other women's tournaments throughout the country and some down in Florida that they would never invite me to play. And they didn't. I remember one tournament I got an invitation to, uh, and it's a, one of the well-known tournaments, women's tournament and down in Florida. And I got an invitation after I turned professional. <laughs> oh, wow. That's, so, well, you, you, it was an amateur tournament. They knew I couldn't play. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that, that makes sense then, right? Oh, yeah, that's terrible. Right. <laughs> that's just terrible. So um, you went on and played at uh, Ohio University and later on Ohio State University, and you captained both of those squads. Um, mm -hmm. And I know there's a little story about Ohio State kind of coming to your your defense with the Ohio Golf Association about uh, when, you right. wanted, when you wanted to play in the state amateur. You're right. Because, you know, I played so much golf, you know, amateur golf and women's events and things around the state and there was no other woman amateur that was better than me but yet still I wasn't able to play because they played at private country clubs um, and as a black person I wasn't welcome I wasn't allowed to play at private country clubs you know as a you know as an tournament or as a guest so um, yeah Ohio State took a stand I got called into the office one day up ahead of the women's physical education department there were like, three other women in there and so we know you've never played in our state championship, but we know why. And and I'm thinking I was new, a new student then, fairly new. And I'm like, gee, how do they know why? <laughs> they know all the reasons behind it. And so because Ohio State, the Ohio State University put a lot of money and whatnot was a major part of that. And so they said, you know, as a student here, you're entitled to play. And if you want to send in your application, do so. And if they refuse to accept your application, then... Ohio State, the Ohio State University will pull out of the association, which was a huge stand for a major university to take for one student, you know, a woman and a black woman. So, um, you know, it's, so there are always, always really good people around. There are a bunch of, you know, there's always a few idiots. <laughs> people, of course. But there are also <laughs> those that are, you know, that know right from wrong and, and, uh, and we'll do the things that are the right things to do. And certainly Ohio State University was taking a stand. Well, I, so, think, that, I think that's um, fantastic. I really do. Yeah. And so here you are, you, you, you're graduating from college and you 
made you made the decision that you wanted to play on the LPGA tour, even though you knew it was going to be a a hard road. There had only been one one African American before you, Althea Gibson. Um, mm-hmm. How how difficult was it? You know, especially in the beginning of your LPGA tour career. Well, you know, I because of the fact that I started off playing uh, uh, USJ Junior Girls, and I met a lot of a lot of the pros. And at that time, the interesting thing is that a lot of the the girls that were coming up at that time ended up turning professional. It was a really a really great crop of very good players, and so um, they ended up on the tour. So you know, I I competed, you know, when I was in college, and I knew a lot of people, and then. The LPGA always allowed uh, two players, two amateurs within the area to play, okay. be a part of. They would invite them. And so I, you know, I would, uh, like if they were in Ohio or Michigan or someplace close, then I played as, a, you know, as an amateur with the lady pros. And so I got to know a lot of a lot of the different people. I met Patty Berg at my first USJ Junior Girls because she followed me around watching me play. Oh, that's cool. Uh, and so, and she was still on tour when I went on tour. So, um, it was, um, so I had no problems with the players at all because they, most of them knew me. Mm-hmm. Um, but the problems came with really with the outside, the, the, the public, you know, uh, especially if you, you know, into areas where they've never had a black person play on the golf course before. Right. Right. So, uh, and, and, and there was some resistance. Um, I know Althea, there were tournaments that, uh, um, that Althea had challenges at. Uh, and so at one time, a lot of our tournaments, they made them, uh, invitational. They were called invitational. So they could invite everybody, but didn't have to invite uh, Althea and myself. Of course. And so our tournament director at the time, Lenny Wirtz, he was the one that took a stand and said, you know, uh, this is our field. Either everybody is, is plays or, or, or nobody plays. And he had talks with the, with the players. He had a, you know, uh, and he, he sort of stated how things could be, the fact that they may lose some tournaments because of that, because he was breaking down those, um, uh, racial issues because mm-hmm. Lenny had been a referee with the NBA and so he was used to um, a diversity um, but it was so it's 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 been a lot of challenges over the years in you know in breaking down barriers so um, uh, but as I said I had no problems with the players themselves it was all the outside agencies right and did, did you consider yourself a trailblazer at that time or were you just trying to play the game that you i consider myself i consider myself an lpga golf pro okay you know? <laughs> and and uh never looked at the fact of being a trailblazer or a pioneer or any of that i mean i just uh i played the game of golf i you know i was a golf professional i love golf and uh and actually it was challenging <laughs> it was challenging for for a lot of LPG players as, as women, you know, so I thought like, you know, it was, it was a challenge for me as a woman and also a challenge for me as a female. Right. So after your LPGA tour career, what, what did your life look like? I know that uh, you spent some time in Europe. But what, what did you do after the LPGA tour? Well, after the LPGA tour, I did a couple of things. I 
one thing I did was I put together a program of going to our HBCU schools, our historically black colleges and universities, and and really trying to get those students to understand that once they left the academia world, went out to the real world, golf was a golf was a sport that they needed to play, they needed to know. And and it's it's ironic how everybody now is jumping on board with the HBCU schools. <laughs> right. Uh, the other thing I did was I decided to make some trips to the continent of Africa to teach the indigenous people and about golf. And I knew that anywhere that the British had colonized, that they were, you know, they spent their leisure time playing golf and there were golf courses. Francophone countries, not so much, but a few had a few golf courses. So I, I, over the years, made 25 trips to the continent of Africa. My last trip, however, was, uh, Actually, with Betsy King and Julie Angster and Julie's daughters and Catherine Kirk, um, and it was because uh, Betsy had created a program called Golf for Africa, F O R E Africa, okay. um, and doing a lot there. And so she had asked me to go. That was actually my twenty fifth trip, and that was to the uh, African country of Rwanda. So those are some of the things that I've done, and then gotten just involved in and become gone from being a professional golfer to being a golf professional where, you know, instead of competing, I'm teaching. Okay. And I know you also started your own clothing line at one, at one time and, and spent some time as a golf commentator. Well, yeah. And that was really, uh, I did that in, uh, when I was in, um, England Mm -hmm. and for a major fashion house over there. So it was really, um, it was a, it was a clothing company, and we and I did some things in designing with them, and and um, uh, did some golf clothes. Yeah, while I was still living in England, and and um, so you know my my life has been very varied. You know, and I was fortunate to be able to do some commentating. Uh, uh, I remember Frank Trickinian, who was you know an incredible um, producer with CBS. At, first asked me to do uh, some commentating with CBS, and so that's how that got started. So, you know, and so I have never done anything that was not somehow related to golf. Right. <laughs> Whether it was designing or, or speaking or commentating or competing or teaching, everything I've done, which really just shows you, you know, the immensity of the game of golf and what you can do. Right. Right. It's just, it's, it's an incredible, you know, sport, but it's, it's a wonderful, mm-hmm. it's a wonderful community of, you know, giving back and people just seem mm-hmm. to, to gravitate uh, to that as well. Right. And then, so you, then it was, I guess in 1995, you decided it was time to go home and you went back to Clearview and became the head professional and how had things changed well, and, and what, what are mm-hmm. some of the things that you, some programs you put together in the community? Well, you know, I came back from 94, and I was glad I did because my mom passed in 96. But I was I was uh, actually the golf pro at a, at a public golf course up in Cleveland for seven years before I came back to Clearview. Okay. It was a 36-hole golf course that I, I um, uh, it was owned by the city of Cleveland. It was one of those, it was actually the very first golf course where I played a golf tournament. Oh, wow. And so um, when I was 12... And so then I went back and uh, became the the golf pro there, and and then after that, um, uh, after that ended, um, and, and I and I needed a 
I needed a place to continue to be a golf professional, right? <laughs> and so um, um, my family welcomed me back, of course. That's wonderful. And so, and, and, and since I've been here, you know, I've done a lot of the programs that I did when I wasn't here, I continued to do. And we do like a lot of women's programs, youth programs, you know, um, we do a program for women military veterans and, and also a program for male veterans too. But, you know, just anybody and everybody, I think everybody should play this wonderful game of golf. And so, uh, just like my dad who said that everybody, everybody, should have an opportunity to play the game. And so golf is in my blood. It's, you know, it's part of my DNA. And um, so, I, you know, any anything and everything that, that one can do, I do. That's great. And I know you just had an incredible legacy of, of giving back to the, you know, to the game of golf. You're, there's a lot of firsts in your life. Um, and again, you don't, you don't seek the limelight, but the limelight seems to seek you. And, you know, you talk about the things that you've done, like, you know, the Goodwill Ambassador, you know, 25 trips mm-hmm. to Africa. I know you did a USO tour to Vietnam. Right, to Vietnam, right. Um, and then along with your family, you established the Clearview Legacy Foundation for Education, Preservation, and, and Turfgrass Research, and mm-hmm. which is fantastic. Again, it's something that's giving back to, to the game. You just mentioned the Clearview, the hope, helping our patriots mm-hmm. everywhere. And most recently, and this is just a phenomenon, I think, is the hoodie project um, with the, with that you kind of started with Michelle Wee West that that really gives to the LPGA Foundation. Talk about that a little bit. Well, actually, Michelle Wee started that. Michelle Wee West started that program, and she wanted to give back and do something. And I think she got to a point in her life where she felt she wanted to give back to. She became a you know, she was married. She became a new mother, and, um, and you know and um, and she's just uh, blossomed. And so she went to the LPG and said she wanted to do something to get back. And, and the LPG had started a program called Renee Powell LPG Girls Golf Grants and programs to get more young black girls into the game of golf and into our girls' golf sites. And so Michelle went to them and said, you know, I want to, you know, raise funds and do something with this. And so they all talked and said, well, you know, and Renee's also... You know, very much her passion is her Clearview Legacy Foundation and raising funds for that to making sure to preserve, uh, you know, the legacy for the next 75 years and beyond. And so that's how it started. So half the money goes to the LPGA, half the money goes to the Clearview Legacy Foundation. And so it's just become an incredible uh, project. And uh, so Michelle has uh, has really been driving that and, and just... And it supports those two great causes, which are two really, you know, special programs and causes for me. Absolutely. And um, I, I have a quick question that I know that a lot of the listeners are wondering, too. When are they going to restock the hoodies? Because we, oh, we want our hoodies. they are restocking them now. <laughs> they are restocking them now. So they're going to be able to, <laughs> they're going to, be able to um, order hoodies. Well, they can place an order and... They're going to be able to get them soon. That's great. Now, again, I, I was trying to think of, you know, before we got on the phone, how am I going to kind of end our time together? And I think I, I really love this quote from Steve Mona. Uh, a lot of people know he was the CEO of the World Golf Foundation. And I think, right, I think right. it really sums up how you've impacted the game. And he said, simply put, 
Renee Powell is one of the most important and historically significant people in the game of golf today. As a player, teacher, leader, and advocate for the game, Renee's impact cannot be overstated. She is one of the treasures of our game. And I think that's a great way to end our time together, Renee. So thank you so much for being with us here on On the Green Podcast. Oh, Tim, thank you so very much. It's been it's been a real pleasure. We'll be right back. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for this show. I really appreciate you listening and hope you let all of your friends and colleagues know about the show as well. And don't be shy about submitting a review of the show on Google or your favorite podcast platform. I'd like to thank my guest, Renee Powell. Boy, what a great career and what a trailblazer she really is. Now, next week, we'll have the final installment. Again, you can find On The Green Podcast on your favorite podcast platform or on my website, onthegreenconsulting.com. And if you have ideas for future shows, please send me an email, tim at onthegreenconsulting.com. I'm your host, Tim Eiley, and until next time, try to keep it in the short grass.